God has been faithful to send out his messengers. If you'll turn with me, please. Romans chapter 10. Now, last week we examined the first part of this. And uh, this morning we'll be looking at the second half. But to do that, I need to set the context for you again to make sure that we know exactly how this all fits together. Now, in the course of giving the gospel message to the Romans, the gospel message that salvation is by God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his person and his work. It's not by effort. It's not by what you do. Paul has been trying to encourage believers because as, I mean, let's face it, as we identify with Christ, persecution rises up against us. Not everybody likes the fact that you're a Christian. Part of that fact is just that you're living your life, you're trying to be what God wants you to be, and that contrast between your life and their life, they don't like it. And so they react to you. They don't like the idea that they are a sinner, that they have a need for forgiveness. And so there can be a negative part about being a Christian. We struggle with that sometimes. There's also this whole section that Paul talked about in Romans 7. We struggle with sin. We, we don't like it. We want to be something different, yet we're still in that struggle. We have the reality, even as we were praying for Lorraine this morning, our bodies fail us. We're declining. Uh, those, there was quite a few who were out here yesterday for work day. And some of you feel it this morning. Your body is failing you and the back is a little sore from whatever you were doing, right? Uh, some of you older gentlemen that were sleeping out with the boys found out the ground, for some reason, is getting harder. I don't know, you know what's going on. As time, the ground just gets harder and you're a little sore. Our bodies fail us. Well, all those things together cause us for a longing. We'd like to depart from here and be in heaven, put all this behind us and be where we really want to be. And the older you get, the more that longing is there. And so Paul's encouraging them. In the midst of all of our struggles, all the things we don't like, we have an absolute confidence for the future. Well, how can we have such confidence? It's because of God's sovereignty. And so Paul deals with that in Romans chapters 8 and 9. God is sovereign. He is sovereign in our salvation. And that which he began in you, he will complete it. There is nothing, there is no entity, there is no circumstance that can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Nothing. His promises are sure. We know where we shall be in the future. Well, of course, in bringing in God's sovereignty, there becomes questions. Well, is God fair then if he is sovereign in salvation and not everybody's saved, then is is that fair? And we started dealing with that in chapter 9. And recall that Paul gave two primary answers. Number one, God is creator. And as creator, he has the right to do whatever he wants with his creatures. Period. We have no right to question him. Period. But Paul doesn't stop there. And I'm sure glad he doesn't. Because what an arbitrary God that would be. Instead, he goes on and says, the fact is, is what God has demonstrated to all people is mercy. He has gone a step beyond justice. He has given us mercy to the wicked and to those who are righteous, those he's called. To the wicked, he is patiently enduring them in their rebellion against them instead of casting them immediately into hell, which he could have done. He could have done that with every single one of us. Instead, he patiently endures them. He still finds a way to to bring glory to himself through them while he extends to those who are his vessels of mercy an extra grace. It's not being unjust. It's simply an extra grace. God is merciful. 
So God's sovereignty certainly is not something that we can then point back and say, well, God's unfair. Well, in chapter 10, Paul is now giving some additional reasons that God is just. And it boils down to this. Man has been given the gospel. God has done everything that needs to be done in presenting to man the truth. But man has rejected it and he is responsible for that rejection. And he is using Israel as the illustration of this. Even as he started in chapter 9, it's more of an illustration than anything else because whatever God's promises were to Israel, if he doesn't keep them, then we can't be assured of his promises either, can we? But if he does keep them and he fulfills all of his promises to that nation, then we can also be assured that the promises made to us, he will also keep because it reflects his character. Well, has God been faithful to Israel? What about the fact that they're not all saved? Is God faithful? Well, yes, he is. In the first few verses of chapter 10, Paul recounts going back, I think, and somewhat reflecting on his own life because he had such a zeal for God as a Pharisee. And yet, as he finally came to admit later, without knowledge, completely ignorant. And so many of his countrymen were still in that same state. And so he begins the whole chapter with a longing, wanting to see his, his fellow brethren come to Christ. Well, they had the knowledge, they had the zeal, but they were ignorant of the truth. The message was near to them, and they did not pay attention to it. Paul explains again very briefly here in chapter 10, but again important, righteousness cannot come through the law. The righteousness in the law demands that you keep all the law, and Israel could not do that. No one can do that. If you live by the law, as Moses had said uh, back in... uh, Deuteronomy, if you live by the law, then you must keep all the law and you'll be judged by that law. Israel could not keep the Mosaic law. As Paul had pointed out in chapter 2, we can't keep the law either if it's a religious system we've come up with. A lot of you I know come from Catholicism. Anybody you in Catholicism is actually able to keep up all the regulations that were given to you? Of course not. That's why you had to go to confession all the time, right? And even with that, you couldn't get it because you had to keep coming back over and over. You couldn't keep the law. It condemned you. What about the law of your conscience? It condemns us too. Even those basic things that God has placed within our hearts, we don't keep that. So our conscience condemns us. No one can keep the law. Whether it's the Mosaic law, a law of some religious system you come up with, or the law of your conscience. You can't keep it. The law condemns. Well, if the law condemns, there must be some other way then that a man can be made right before God. And that's what Paul's been explaining the whole time, isn't it? Only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his death on our behalf on the cross, is there forgiveness. Because just as it was with Abraham, God reckons to us righteousness based on our faith in him, that we believe what he has said. That's his grace, isn't it? And so it really comes down to the same thing. Jesus Christ, as verse Uh, Four says, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. No more striving. No more trying to earn your way to heaven. It's been paid for by him. His righteousness has been imputed to us. We stand clean before God because of Christ. And so it is the end of the law. Now, is God faithful? Yes, he is. Because the law was given to Moses and the message of the gospel has been given to the apostles. It's not something that's esoteric, something far away. Or as the text says, you don't have to send someone up to heaven to try and bring it down. Why? Where's Jesus Christ from? Heaven. 
He already brought it down. He gave the message. You don't have to try and send someone to, uh, to the grave and come back from the dead to tell you why. Jesus Christ already did that. He's already told us, hasn't he? It's near you. It's been given to you. In fact, it's so close it should be in your heart and coming out of your mouth. It's that close. It's been given to us. We have it. It's not something distant. Not something you have to search for. It's present. God's been faithful with this. And the simplicity of the message, look there at verses 9 and 10 again. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus is Lord, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Why? Because with the heart man believes unto righteousness. Remember, faith is reckoned to a man as righteousness. All the way back to Abraham. And with confession, by the mouth, doesn't have to be the mouth, but a confession, something signifying these are the things I believe, it's an outward declaration of your belief, results in salvation. Because now you're confessing, you're proclaiming what you say you believe. Confession is made unto salvation. It's a simple thing, and yet we still find in our own nation that so many reject it. They don't want to understand Jesus as Lord in the sense of what the text here says. They want to make him something else. It's a very common thing now where people say this idea of Lord means, that, well, Jesus is just deity or it's just a title. That's not the context. Go through and look how uh, Paul uses the word Lord in connection with Jesus all through Romans. It's always with the sense of master. It's a sense that I am to submit myself to this one. And as I pointed out last week, if you wanted to say that this meant Lord just in the sense of deity, well, what kind of God do you have? God, by his very nature of who he is, is a being to whom we must submit and have an obligation to serve, period, because that's who he is. So if they want to say it just means deity, fine. Now I want to know what kind of God you have. The God of the Bible is one who is my master. Jesus is my master because he is God. All the ramifications of that is what it means by that confession. That's who he is That is my relationship to him. Confessing that is part of it. Believing that God has raised him from the dead. That's not just that, like Lazarus, we believe he was raised from the dead. But all that's encompassed with him rising from the dead. Why did he die? Because of my sin. His resurrection is the proof of all of his promises that it's sufficient to cover my sin, that he has the power to then forgive me, all bound up in the resurrection. Check out 1 Corinthians 15 for that. That's what all this is about. So to believe in your heart these things concerning Christ, his person, his work, is accounted to me as righteousness by God. Not because of something I've done. Because of his mercy. I then proclaim what I believe to others. This is my relationship. He is who he claimed. He's God in human flesh. He is the one who I'm served. He's the one to whom uh, I have obedience that I'm obligated to give. He's my master. That is who Jesus Christ is. Now the question then comes up is, okay, so the message is clear, it's simple, it's around, but what good is a message if people don't hear it? Right? There's a lot of things out there that would probably be great if we knew them. There's a lot of things we like to tell people, even in your businesses, right? You'd like people to know about your business. Doesn't it generally cost you quite a bit of money to try and get people to know that you're there? Right? You've got to get the information out. Here we are. So, you can have the greatest message in the world, and this is, but if it's not some means of getting it out, it doesn't do anybody any good, does it? 
Was God been faithful? Yes, he has. Look at verse 11. Paul first brings up the questions and then lets us know God has already supplied the answer. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. Now notice here that this offer, verses 11 through 13 points out, it's made universally. It's a whosoever believes, it's whosoever calls. And the universal nature of this offer is then emphasized by Paul's statement that there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek in this. For the Lord has always had the same rich grace upon all who would call upon him. The scripture referenced here in verse 11 is from Isaiah 28, verse 16. The offer of salvation to the Gentile was not something new. It was in the Old Testament as well. In fact, part of the responsibility of the nation of Israel as God's chosen people was to declare God to all nations. There to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. God had said that when he had made his covenant with Abraham, that through Abraham there would be a blessing to all families of the earth. Were they carrying that out? They were the ones who were supposed to carry that out and tell them. They responded negatively. Paul was proclaiming a message that they were hostile to. See, Jewish people are no different than us, no matter what your ethnic heritage or background. Our tendency is to be ethnocentric. We think that we're the best. Period. No matter what we are. We'll find something that we must be better than other people. And they were that way. And so they looked at hostility that we don't want to give them the gospel. We're above them. This is only for us. Now, an example of that in the Old Testament is Jonah. It's a great example of both God's grace, his mercy to the Gentiles, as well as this ethnocentric hatred of other people. And yet God still gets his message out. You recall the story of Jonah. Jonah lived in Israel, the northern section. And Assyria was the powerful nation that was above them. Assyria was not a nice nation. By this time, Assyria had often would come down into Israel. They'd make raids. They'd steal all their stuff. Now, I don't know how you would feel about someone who would come into your home and take everything that you own and leave nothing there, including your cupboards are bare. I can say this. My chickens are gone. Your animals are gone. You know, they take everything. How do you feel about such people? Just can't wait to, to go up and give them a hug? No, you'd like to give them a hug with something in your hand that they would not get away from and they would just lie there after you leave, right? Well, at least the men feel that way. We're more violent, I'm told. You don't like them. You hate them. So God tells Jonah, Jonah, you go up to Nineveh, that's the capital of Assyria, and you warn them that I'm about to judge them unless they repent. And Jonah says, whoa, this is the opportunity. God is going to judge them. I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm going the other way. So he gets in a boat and off he goes because he wants God to judge them. Now, of course, it's never a wise thing to ignore what God tells you to do, is it? Right? So a great storm comes up and the ship is about to be lost. 
and the, the crew is working as hard as they can. They're throwing everything overboard, trying to lighten it, just trying to stay afloat. Skip the idea. We're not going to make a province trip. I just hope we get back alive. And Jonah, there's everybody there. Pray to your God. We don't care who it is. Pray. Maybe someone will save us. And Jonah says, well, the problem is me. If you throw me overboard, you'll be safe. The storm will stop. Well, they don't want to do that. They're thinking, no, if we throw them overboard, the gods will be even more angry with us. So they're working even harder. And finally, they're so desperate, they say, okay, Jonah, right? Out you go. And the book of Jonah tells us what happened. (laughs) Storm stopped. Now, that should have been the end of Jonah, shouldn't it? But God had this already arranged. He knew what was going to happen. He knew Jonah's heart. He had prepared a great fish. It wasn't a whale. I'm sorry, it wasn't a whale. The Hebrew word there is fish. It's a great fish. Now, it doesn't tell us what kind of fish, but it was something that swallowed him. Spent three days in it. The fish is his transportation back to land. Gets up to land and he spits them out. Yeah, yuck. Okay? But you know what? Jonah got the point. You know where he went? He went to Nineveh. Now, is, is Jonah's heart really changed yet? Not at all. He goes through... Talk about a, a boring preacher. You had three days and the Lord will destroy you all. And he just walks through saying that he doesn't... I mean, that's it. Just no hope. Yet the Lord's going to destroy you. It doesn't say anything about repenting. But the Assyrians do repent. And Jonah's not happy about it. He doesn't like this at all. In fact, he complains in chapter 4, verse 2, saying this, I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. And I don't like it when you extend it to them. I like it when you extend it to me, but not to them. Okay? People are that way. But that is the nature of God, isn't he? He is gracious. He's a compassionate God. He is slow to anger. He is abundant in loving kindness. And he is one who relents concerning calamity. That is the nature of God. He cannot be accused of being unjust in his judgment of sinners. He has offered salvation to all, sometimes through reluctant prophets who aren't even excited about the message, but the message goes out. It is heard, and he responds to those who will turn to him. Man is responsible to respond to the offer that's given. Now, there's many other scriptures that make the same point. In uh, 1 John 2.2, Jesus says that he himself is the propitiation for sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. In other words, Jesus' death, his atonement for sin, is sufficient for everyone. There is no lack here of the ability for God to forgive, is there? 2 Peter 3.9 tells us the Lord's uh, moral will, his desire. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's what he would desire to have happen. That's God's moral will. All to respond positively to his offer of salvation. In Acts 17, Paul is responding to the Athenians on Mars Hill and he points out they had this altar to the uh, unknown God. He's telling them about this unknown God, the one who had created them, the one who is Lord of heaven and the earth, who having looked overlooked, rather, the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that all everywhere should repent. It's his command. His desire and his command, and he's provided for it. Turn from your false gods and turn to the true God. So the Gospels, the Epistles, they're full of these declarations of God's offer of salvation to all who will believe in Jesus Christ. Go through John very quickly. John 3.16, we all know that one. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever will believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 5.24 Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears My word and believes in Him who sent Me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. John 6.40 For this is the will of My Father that everyone, that's universal, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life and I Myself will raise Him up on the last day. John 8.51 Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps My word, he shall never see death. John 11.25 Jesus speaking to the Syrophoenician woman, or rather, I'm sorry, to um, uh, Martha. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never live or never die. That is the universal offer. Whosoever will. We saw it in Romans 8 and 9. Yes, God's sovereign salvation. And here in Romans 10 we find it's a genuine offer of salvation to whosoever will. Man is responsible for how he responds to the message of salvation. While God's sovereignty and His universal offer seem to be opposites to our finite mind, they seem to clash. Uh, the proper word actually here is antinomy. Two truths that seem uh, in, incongruous. They, they are clashing with each other. Yet in God's infinite mind, there's no problem here. We just don't understand it. But both are true. Both are true. The offer is there. It is genuine. It is not that man cannot turn to Christ to believe. It's rather because of man's sinful nature, man absolutely will not believe unless God sovereignly intervenes. All man has to do is call upon the name of the Lord and he will be saved. That's how the text puts it, isn't it? What kind of cry is this? Think of the uh, tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke um, 18. And they both go to pray. The Pharisee prays thus to himself and basically it's a prayer of this. God, aren't you so lucky to have me on your side? What kind of prayer is that? But the tax gatherer is beating his breast, won't lift his head, is bowed down and says, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's calling upon the name of the Lord. And Jesus said, it was the tax gatherer that went to his house and justified. Not the Pharisee who was doing all the things that were supposed to be proper, at least according to their mindset. Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. But man will not do this on his own because he views it as foolishness. 1 Corinthians 2.14 So God has provided the means of salvation to men the message is simple. God has brought it to man. God has made this universal offer to everyone. But again, is the offer worth much if no one knows about it? Has God provided a messengers to go out and, and tell all people? Well, we saw the verses here earlier, but let's look at it more in depth again. How then shall they call upon Him in whom they have not believed? This is verse 14. How shall they believe in Him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. So Paul brings up all the objections first and then states they're fulfilled. And here he quotes Isaiah 52.7. Now, of course, this is not a praise of the messenger's physical feet. All right? That just because you can speak with your mouth and proclaim the good things of God that your feet somehow turn beautiful. Um, at that time, you got from place to place by walking. 
and they generally wore sandals. Your feet actually would be fairly filthy by the time you got wherever you're going, right? But I think we all understand the idea. When someone arrives with good news or something good that you're anticipating, everything about them is, is great, even their dirty feet. You think, this is beautiful. Look what they brought to me. Now, all deference here to UPS, but I think their tr- trucks are pretty ugly. Okay? I mean, they are brown. What a sick color, brown, too. But you know what? Every time that truck pulls up here, I go, UPS is here! And I'm excited about it! And boy, this guy looks so great because he's bringing me good things, right? Don't you feel the same way? Well, I, I don't know. Maybe you don't. He brings me good things. Now, the postman, though, I, I'm a little bibbling about the postman because I get some good things, but you know, there's those other things he brings, too, like bills. So his feet aren't nearly as beautiful as the UPS man. You can share that with all your UPS workers. We have more beautiful feet than the postal workers. We understand that, right? Well, that is how it is for those who declare the gospel message. To those who understand and receive it, it is great news and the messenger is held in high regard. Think back to those who first shared the gospel with you. And especially when you finally came to understand what this message was all about and you turned to Christ for forgiveness of sins, you were freed from it. And boy, those who told you, they're beautiful people. You, you just love them because they're so, you're so grateful for what they brought to you. Now we realize there's the other side of that. What about those people who continue to reject the message? And they do reject it. Well, they don't view you as so beautiful. They view you as an irritant. And maybe that's why so many Christians are hesitant to share the gospel with others. They're so afraid of someone looking down upon them, so afraid that they're going to say something negative or persecute them, shun them. We don't want to say anything. Most people don't respond positively. We need to understand that. Look at verse 16. However, they did not all heed the glad tidings. See, he's telling us that right away. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Again, Paul's quoting from Isaiah, this time from chapter 53, verse 1. The news of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, they're glad tidings. He has proven his love for us. He has paid the price of our sins and He offers eternal life which breaks that bondage of sin to everyone who will place their faith in Him. And some will heed it. Some will heed the report and they will uh, take it in, they'll believe and they'll become new creations in Christ. But most will not. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Chapter 7, verse 13, He said, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to the way of destruction. And many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few are those that find it. That truth has not changed. The gospel message goes forth, but most people still reject it. But even so, let's back up for a minute. What about these rhetorical questions Paul presented in verses 14 and 15? How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? Is it possible? How shall they believe in whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? 
Add verse 17 to this as well. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How are people going to get saved if they don't hear the message? If people are going to respond to the gospel, they need to hear it. Because they can't call on someone they have not believed. And they can't believe unless someone tells them. The word preacher here in verse 14, it's from the word keruso. It means one who heralds, one who proclaims. And a herald was always sent with a message. God sends his heralds to proclaim his message. Now, there are two important points for us to consider here. First, do not confuse the word preacher or herald here with the office of pastor or of evangelist. That's not the herald. Now, some have tried to use this text to bolster the importance and authority of the pastor. I've heard them. See how important I am? But that's not the context here. It's not the context of what the word means. I am not the only one who does this. I'm a pastor and I preach. Am I the only one who's to preach? Obviously not. Am I the only one who's to proclaim the gospel to other people? Obviously not. That is something that's the responsibility of every single Christian, every single one of you who knows the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are to be proclaiming Him to others. It's your responsibility. It's not just the responsibility of the pastor and evangelist, though that seems the way it works in most churches. That's what we pay Him for, right? We pay you so you can go to the ministry so I can feel good about myself. Well, then what is the idea of preacher here, or this herald being sent in verse 15? Well, it's not the idea that the church or a mission has sent them. That would be foreign to the context. It's the idea that the herald is sent to proclaim a message that was given to them by somebody else. That's what a herald does. They're not to proclaim what is ever on their mind. The watchmen of ancient towns where they would go around and actually with their check-ins make sure there's no fires. You know, 1 a.m., all is well. 2 a.m., all is well. They're not supposed to go out and proclaim whatever's on their mind. 2 a.m. and, hey, what about the giants? <laughs> right? What do you think about the Yankees' opportunity this year? Will they make it? No, see? Oh, I'm sorry, Mets. What about the Mets? have got to get both fans here. Sorry, I'm born in Los Angeles. What about the Dodgers? Oh, I got nowhere with that one. All right. You don't proclaim whatever you want. You proclaim what you're supposed to do. If you're sent by the king with a message to all people as, you know, on such and such a date, the king wants you this, you don't go out and talk whatever is on your mind. You say what the king told you to say. And that is what God has given to us. Each one of you who knows Jesus Christ is to be a herald. You don't go and share whatever is on your mind, whatever seems to interest you. You go and proclaim the message that the king gave you. What is the message? It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. The whole thing. Don't change it around so you get a positive response. Give them the whole thing. God is wonderful. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's kind. He's loving. But He's also just and holy. And right now, unless you know Him and have received righteousness through Him and you're holy before Him, you're under His condemnation. And that's not a good thing. But God has provided a means through Jesus Christ that you can be saved. You can be forgiven of your sins. Don't forget the sin part. Don't just say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and let them think that means 
oh good, I can try this and my life is going to be wonderful, hunky-dory and I'll get all the things I ever want. No. It's a submission to Him. Your sins are going to be forgiven. That's the message. And that belongs to you. Not just to me. I was talking to someone the other day. They thought they had to get the permission of their pastor to go out and witness. You know, what kind of church is that? You don't need my permission. You've already been commissioned. I am not the pastor, if you really get to it. I am the under-pastor. I'm the under-shepherd. The word pastor and shepherd are the same thing. One just from a Latin root. Who is your shepherd? Jesus Christ. Who commissions you? Jesus Christ. Do you need my permission to go out and serve him? No. You need to go do it, right? Usually, it's, I sometimes feel my job is to kick you, you know? Get going! So, that is what we're supposed to be doing. Now, I can't stress this fact enough. Because if people are going to hear the gospel, it's only going to occur because God's people took the message of the gospel and took it out there. If we were able to hire an evangelist, and that's still my dream that we have another guy here and we're co-working together, the evangelist is not hired to go out and evangelize people on your behalf. You hire him so he can come in and train you to go out and do that. That's what evangelists do. At least the proper evangelist. Pastors' jobs are to train for the work of ministry you to go do it, not to do it on your behalf. The question that every Christian must answer then is this. Who are you telling? You're God's herald. Who are you proclaiming him to? So don't slip into the mindset of our society that's so self-centered where life revolves around doing what you want to do and being with the people that you like. The Christian is to be constantly making relationships through which they can proclaim the truth of Christ to them. That's why I did this dinner for eight thing. And I'm going to be frank here. I'm a little disappointed. We have three groups. That's all I was able to get. I was expecting six or seven at least. I really was. And I would like to believe that the reason I have three groups is that all of you are just busy out there and you're so booked with meeting new people and, and inviting all the, the new folks in the church over to your house that there's just nowhere to put it. I wish I could believe that, but I don't. That was the whole purpose of it. You still have that responsibility. Life is not about just inviting over those you already like or the search for the person that you like. We have a responsibility to take the gospel message to people that you may not want in your house twice. Now, I'm frank with that too. I've had people in my house that I don't want coming back. But you know what? We've got to give them the gospel. And how can we do it if we're not going to meet with them? We're not going to interact with them and extend ourselves. Jesus Christ extended himself, left the glories of heaven to come live with us and to love us. Can we not do that for people around us? That's the purpose. You are the heralds. You're the preachers. And if you think that's really something great, I'll get you a tag that says, Preacher, and I'll send you out. Go do it. Because it's our responsibility, every single one of us. You're the heralds. Now, the fact here, getting back to the context of the, the passage, God is going to get his message out, regardless of what you do. Now, that doesn't give you an excuse. But regardless of what you do, he will get his message out. State so that in verse 18. They have heard, for the sound of God's message has gone to the ends of the earth. And Paul's already said in Romans 20 that creation itself is so powerful that all men are without excuse because it declares certain aspects of the nature of God, that you need to be seeking this one. You need to be seeking the God that created you. 
All men are without excuse. But the Lord has gone further than just creation. He's declared Himself to all people through His heralds. He gives us the privilege. It is a privilege of being His herald. It is not a negative. It is a privilege. And if you do not fulfill that, it is your loss. It is. It is your loss. Yes, you will suffer for Christ's sake when you strive to live in godliness. You will have people reject you when you tell them the gospel. But the suffering of living in ungodliness is much worse, isn't it? In addition, there is the blessing as you do this that you get beautiful feet from those who do hear and heed and respond. Beautiful feet. Maybe I should take off my shoes and say, these are beautiful feet. But they're not. They're just my feet. But the message is beautiful. And when you take that to someone, they respond. They understand. And yeah, beautiful feet. There's no injustice with God in his condemnation of the unrighteous, the ungodly. He has sent his heralds to proclaim forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. The message of salvation has gone out to all. It's a message that offers forgiveness of sin to all. It's a message that's simple. It's understandable. It's near to all men. And so man is responsible for his own rejection of that message. And God's faithful. This is seen in verses 19 through 21. He has shown mercy to the Gentiles, even using it as a means to provoke Israel to heed and believe. And yet he's continued to be merciful to Israel at the same time. Look there at verse 19. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? At the first, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who sought me not. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. The quote here in verse 19 is from Deuteronomy 32, 21. Fifteen hundred years before Paul turned to the Gentiles, Acts 13, 46, and took the gospel to them, Moses had revealed that God would do that. That's a pretty good length of time for a prophecy, isn't it? It was a great mercy to the Gentiles. It was designed to provoke Israel. Israel did know God and his message of salvation of righteousness through faith, but they remained obstinate against it. They refused to believe it themselves, and so they refused to tell others. They were without excuse. Isaiah also foretold that this would happen. The quote in verse 20 is from Isaiah 65, verse 1. God would reveal himself to the Gentiles even though they had not sought God. The context of this passage shows that this would be done because of Israel's rejection of the Lord. So Paul uses a quote from Moses that encompasses all the law. He uses a quote from Isaiah that encompasses all the prophets. So the law and prophets both demonstrate and show. God has been merciful to the Gentiles, to us, because of Israel's stubbornness. They didn't take the message. So he found a different way to do it and brought it to us anyways. Well, then how does he respond to Israel? Still with mercy. Verse 22 is a quote from Isaiah 65, verse 2. That's the very next verse from what he quoted the, in verse 19. And here it shows that even in the midst of Israel's rejection of the Lord, the Lord is still merciful to them. They were a disobedient and obstinate people, and yet the Lord continued to stretch out his hands to them. That's not stretching out to hit them, chastise them. It's stretching out with an offer. Come to me. 
as a parent would stretch out their hands for their little one running to them. That's what he wanted. He was a father to them. But they were disobedient children. They ran the other way. Now, justice would have allowed him to destroy them right then. That's it. They're gone. Remember, he even suggested that to Moses. Just, we'll just destroy them. We'll start over. But God's mercy compelled him to continue to reveal himself to them and offer them forgiveness, even in their stubborn rebellion. And next week, we'll see that even with all this, only a remnant would hear and heed and follow God. The rest would suffer the Lord's condemnation. God is loving. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is kind. He is long-suffering. He declares his plan of salvation to all men. Salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not of works, not your effort. Through faith in Christ and what he has done. He then patiently, patiently endures the rejection of that message and the continued rebellion against him. But eventually God has other attributes that are going to come into play. He is holy, he is righteous, and he is just. And they will compel him to judge and to condemn the wicked. Any charge that God is unjust in his dealings with man is unfounded. Man is responsible for his own rejection of God's offer of salvation. Again, God continues to demonstrate himself to be merciful. His sovereign intervention in choosing some for salvation is only a greater extension of that mercy. It is not injustice. God is sovereign, sovereign, he is just, and he is merciful. And we need to praise him for it, don't we? Father, we are very grateful for all your blessings to us. And certainly this morning as we look at a passage, it's not an easy passage to understand, Father, but with the help of your Holy Spirit, it is understandable. Father, these are two truths that are at odds in our minds. We don't understand them. And yet we do believe and trust you that you are sovereign in salvation and yet you are also just in giving a genuine offer to all men. Father, thank you for the blessing you've given to those of us here this morning in this room that have already responded. That extra mercy poured out that we might walk with you and know you and have your forgiveness. Father, I'd implore you, beg you, that you would continue to be that way with those in the room that do not know you. You would extend that mercy to them. They might see their need of you and turn and receive that forgiveness. Father, even as we'd entreat them to respond to it. Father, thank you that we can place our trust in you because of your character, even for the things we don't understand. And Father, prod us that we might see how we can be heralds today and throughout the week of the greatest gift that was ever given. Forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. For it's his, in his name we ask it. For his glory. Amen.